We'd like to read our scripture lessons today. Our Old Testament lesson is a long one. Proverbs 26, verse 2. <laughs> oh, I got, I got my wrong glasses on. You'll see why I chose this for our Old Testament text. <clears throat> it's a preach this morning. It's a great text to know, to hold on to, to take into yourself. So listen here to God's word. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. Amen. And then our gospel text is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. This is Jesus speaking, interacting with some folks in his own day. And this is going to be a curse that does alight. And we'll see about it in our reading from Revelation. Listen here again to the Word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that is, the queen of Sheba, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Amen. I remember reading that passage while I was on my way out to Oregon to work on a cattle ranch in the early summer of 1974. I pulled alongside the road to slept a little bit there on the highway and I was doing reading in the morning and man, that was just powerful to me. And then, it's powerful now. Revelation chapter 9, the first 12 verses I think is what we're going to read. Yep. We looked at the first four trumpets last week. Today we look at the fifth trumpet. Listen here to God's word. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. 
Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power, is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we rejoice in your goodness, we rejoice in your power, uh, we rejoice in the love you have for your people, for all the cosmos, all of your creation. We ask today that, Lord, you would minister to us through your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that our souls and spirits may be fed and that we would be built up in faith. Help us. These things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Lord of all. Amen. What's the challenge of reading in the book of Revelation? Especially passages like the one we read just a few moments ago. Well, the challenge is to understand it, to apply it, right? What in the world does it mean? Uh, we read passages like chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and we say, can we believe the promise given at the very beginning? Remember Revelation 1, 3, what it said? You're going to project it up there. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Man, when we read a text like, like the one we read today, we wonder, how can the one who reads this be blessed? The one who hears it be blessed? How do we heed the things that it talks about? We wonder about that. It says the time is near. So uh, how in this picture we see today in the, the passage from Revelation 9, we see hell unleashed. It's the title of the sermon. Hell is unleashed. Well, man, how do we get blessed and helped in that? So there's a couple of things we want to remember as we read a text like this. And these are things that I've said before in, in uh, preaching through Revelation. Timing issues are important. 
And I would suggest that Jesus himself, in our gospel reading and other places as well, Jesus sets some parameters for us. Matthew 12 from today, and you can put up the thing from Matthew 12. Uh, Matthew 12 from today talks about the generation. You see up there, I think, talks about an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Talks about how the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation and judgment at the judgment and will condemn it. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Uh, Jesus was talking to people then and there. And they understood this generation to mean them. That generation alive then. How long is a generation? Usually we think a generation is about 40 years long is what we say, maybe 25 to 40 years, something like that. We'll say 40 years. That's the, we should get out of back in Genesis. Uh, it says that generation then alive will be condemned at the judgment by these other generations, other types. Uh, the generation in which Jesus lived and walked on the earth was a, in, there in, among the Jews, was a wicked generation. That's, that's a hard thing to hear about any people, to say they're a wicked people. Yet Jesus says it repeatedly about the generation in which he lives. They're a wicked generation. He says it here as clearly as you can possibly hear it. Uh, now that generation, well, why does he compare that generation to the men of Nineveh? And to the Queen of Sheba? That would be a, a good question to ask. Uh, well, Nineveh and Sheba are far, far away from God. Nineveh is not held up as an exemplar of here's how the people of God should be. The land of Sheba is certainly not that either. And yet, in their cultural setting, they, they didn't know God. They were uh, walking in darkness. But they proved when they heard the gospel, when they heard the truth promulgated through Jonah or through Solomon, they were repentant. Okay? Nineveh repented from the king on down. The queen of Sheba, her breath was taken away, and she, she said, oh, the half had not been told me about the glories of Solomon. And Solomon there, and all he says, represents the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingship. Uh, this generation that Jesus talks about was not like the men of Nineveh nor like the queen of Sheba, quite the opposite. That generation had the scriptures. They weren't in darkness. They had the scriptures. They knew the scriptures well. You know, I've been doing a lot of reading in Josephus recently, and he talks about, uh, you know, they, 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 most people there had the Torah memorized. You say the Torah, what? Well, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The first, what, what Hebrew Jewish boys had to learn, their first memory work, was the first eight chapters of Leviticus. You try memorizing that. Well, they, they did, they, they, but that's who they were. They, they had different things we did, but they, they did. So they knew the scriptures. That's the point we want to make. Uh, and they could be very punctilious about outward external matters. We see that given evidence of throughout the Gospels. But 
they could not stomach Jesus. They simply didn't like him. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. They wanted him to do this, and he did that. They wanted him to do that, and he did this. They couldn't stomach the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus say? Text up here is what? It's the next one. He tells the, the parable about the evil spirit that came out of a guy, went around, wandered around, and couldn't find any place. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back and go to the fellow where I was. And the fellow had his house in order, but he hadn't put anything in it. He hadn't built anything up. And so he says, I'll go and stay with him again. And he goes in and takes seven more spirits with him. And the last state of that man is much worse than the first state. And Jesus says, that is the way it will also be with this generation. That is, these folks here around me. Uh, He's saying that they're going to be beset by evil spirits, by demonic forces. That's not an easy thing to think about. Now, that word generation has caused lots of problems. Here's the main one. Uh, the text is Matthew 24, 34. Oh, they got it up there. Jesus says <clears throat> this. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now this is spoken in the middle of what's called the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And it's where you have all these uh, scenes of destruction that are projected and prophesied by Jesus. And so the question becomes, all those things in, in the Olivet Discourse, when do they occur? And Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, that's a pretty hard thing to say. But it does set a time parameter for things to happen. Now let's give some context here. The context comes when, uh, and go ahead and put the next thing. It says, when his disciples came up to, the, to point out the temple buildings to him, he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. That's the context for the Olivet Discourse. They point out to him, and you remember that the temple was magnificent. It took 46 years to build. A lot of architect fees in that, you know, <laughs> and construction fees and all that, but 46 years to build. We were upset when it took three or four or five years to build this. Uh, 46 years, but it was humongous. It was beautiful. It was lavish. And they pointed out to Jesus, look, look at that, the great buildings. And the temple, you know, was like a 35-acre piece of property. It wasn't just the temple. You know, in the, when it says the temple, it means that whole property there. And uh, they say, look at, look at how wonderful that is. And Jesus says, you know what? I see all those things. You see them too. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. That's what he tells them. Well, if you were one of Jesus' disciples 
and he told you that, what would you ask him? What's the next slide say? Here's what they ask him. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? They want to know. And then Jesus launches into the Olivet Discourse. And in the middle of it, what does he say? Again, Matthew 24, 34 says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I preached through Matthew a number of years ago, maybe four or five, six years ago, I'm not sure. We preached through all Matthew 24 and 25, and we talked about that and what it had to do with And There's a place in there about verse 36 or 37 where he transitions and begins to look way down the road. But initially, he's, he's answering their question, when will these things take place? And his point was, this generation will not pass away until these things take place that I've told you about here. Uh, that's been a stumbling block for people. Albert Schweitzer, have you heard of Albert Schweitzer? Famous German humanitarian doctor and all that. He was a great New Testament theologian as well, very learned man. He came to that verse, Matthew 24, 34, and he said Jesus completely misunderstood who he was and what he had to do, and he was crushed and ground up by the wheels of history. Because somehow Jesus thought he was going to come back in this generation and bring in the, you know, the, the inaugurated kingdom, the, the, the finished kingdom of God. And liberal scholars for several hundred years point to that verse, Matthew 24, 34, and say that's why you shouldn't believe the Bible. Because Jesus, you know, th that verse didn't happen. This generation went away and look and behold, we're still here. Except that, except that, and by the way, as a consequence, when they said that, uh, conservative people, in reaction to that, begin to put a different cast upon it. And it says, well, generation means a, a type of people. This type of people would not end. Or it, it, whatever, they would do things like that, and then would recast all of that into some kind of apocalyptic uh, vision for way down the road to wherever. Uh, so it's been a stumbling block. Uh, my suggestion to you throughout this preaching through Revelation has been that much of Revelation, not all of it, much of gener uh, Revelation is about that generation, about God's judgment falling. That's why the dating is so important. And the fact that it says at the very beginning, the time is near. And it goes through and shows all these things, that, and it refers to Jerusalem and uh, the land, you know, the, referring to the land of Israel, all through there. Now, when you say what I've just said, people can also get upset and say, well, it doesn't mean anything for us now. It has no bearing for the present or for the future. Well, we're going to have a little seminary class here for the next minute or two. It's called Hermeneutics 101. Put up Romans 15 passage, if you would, I think it is. Yeah. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance 
and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. <clears throat> Always keep that in mind. That's not the only Scripture that says that. First Corinthians 10 says that, and there's other ones as well, that the Bible was written for us, that we might be encouraged by it. And those things were examples for us that we could learn from them and, and do better, do differently. So we'd be repentant, unlike the people of, the, of that generation. Now, to say a text has a historical grounding does not make it just history. It teaches us and shows us how to understand our times. And our text from Revelation 9 is a good insight on how to understand the times and culture in which we live and what's going on. If you want to understand it, read Revelation 9. It foreshadows for us, these texts, the Bible, the future for us. And in this case, in Revelation 9, specifically characteristics of God's judgment. So how do we make sense of Revelation 9? Well, the, uh, the literal reading of Revelation 9 is that which is the representative reading. That is, it says a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. So was that a real star? Was that a real star? No, it was not. Because the next thing says, and he, right at the end of the verse, it says, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the, the abyss. So the star is representative of something else. It's not a star. Uh, there's a little word that's used in this passage of Revelation 9. It's used eight times. It's a favorite word for people today. I used to try and get confirmation kids not to use it, but I couldn't do it because they, they use it so often all the time. It's the little word, like. L-I-K-E. Like, you know, uh, like, like, you know uh, that thing over there. And here, it's used eight times. But he doesn't use it like the confirmation kids, like you do and like I do. Okay? It's become part of our vocabulary. Uh, it says, this... When I explain it, it's like that. And this is like that. So we need to look at, at what is represented there, not to try and take a picture of it and draw and say, that's what it's going to be, this, this here. Now, let me give you some examples of misuse. I'll just use one. We're, I'm right on time if I stop right now. <laughs> and I'm not stopping right now, just so you know. Uh, <clears throat> This depiction of the scorpions, if you read uh, Hal Lindsey's book, uh, Apocalypse Now, I think, or something like that, he says those things there are really Chinese attack helicopters. And people bought it up. Yeah, those are Chinese attack helicopters. And you can get all this stuff and, and read, where, and people come up with wonderful ideas and all these things, but they're, they completely misuse the text what it should be. What these are, are demons and demonic forces operating and working in the lives of real people. And the real people of this gen that generation, but we can see it in generation after generation. Here's what demonic forces look like. This is 
chapter 9, this is a judgment of God on that generation. It is from God. These demonic forces did not choose to do it on their own. The key to the bottomless pit was given to him. He didn't reach up and grab it. He didn't have it on his possession. He had to receive it. The one who's over all this is the Lord. It's God. The pit, the abyss, is where all the wicked demonic spirits are imprisoned. And there's no escape unless God lets them out. And when he lets them out, he puts limits on what they can do and what they cannot do. So we read in our text today, these particular demonic spirits could not hurt the grass, trees, etc. Anything in nature can't do that. There are other forces that can do that. Read Job. Right? There's wind that happens that come from demonic forces that God unleashes and lets them do that. Uh, now they like to do it. They're not trying to obey God. They're trying to do destruction. And so <clears throat> here's what they cannot do. They cannot hurt grass, trees, etc. They can only touch those persons who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. Who, you know, we, we read back in chapter 7 where God sealed the 144,000. And in that sermon we mentioned it, the 144,000 stands for all the elect of God down through history. If you're part of the elect of God, you're part of that well, 144,000, what that represents, what that shows for us. They're only allowed, there's a limitation to how long they can be effective, for five months, which is normally the time that, uh, that locusts could live over there. Now, this all sounds bad, doesn't it? How could God unleash these kind of forces on people? There's a Scottish theologian who he wrote a pithy little phrase that we need to understand and take into our hearts. God uses sin sinlessly. Right? God uses sin sinlessly. So God used the hands of wicked sinners to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish the greatest thing ever done in the history of the world where he atoned for the sins people. He used sinful men sinlessly. That didn't get rid of their sin. That didn't get rid of their, their, you know, their guilt. But he used it sinlessly to accomplish good. The ultimate good there in that case. Now, this judgment of demonic forces is horrific. It's, when I say horrific, you don't understand the word horrible. It's not pleasant. It's not good. It makes people miserable. They want to die, but they cannot. If you would, people can do whatever they want. It's wide open to them. They can do whatever they want, but they find out that when they do what they want, it only makes things worse and not better. Now, one picture of what took place there, and this is, again, from Josephus. I had a lot of stuff last week. This week, I just have three passages continuous passage in three spots. It's from Josephus describing what happened in Jerusalem in the temple precincts during the time when it was uh, under siege for two and a half years, years before the Romans captured. So here's the first thing they did. It says, 
with their insatiable, this, he's talking about the zealots who have control of all the temple compounds and stuff like that. It says, in their insatiable <clears throat> hunger for loot, they ransacked the houses of the wealthy, they murdered men, violated women for sport, they drank their spoils with blood. That is, they went into the very temple itself and drank stuff with blood, which of course is an abomination to God, and indulged themselves in feminine wantonness without any disturbance till they were satisfied or satiated therewith. So that's part of what was going on. They're doing whatever they wanted. But listen what comes next. They were plaiting their hair and putting on women's clothes, drenched themselves with perfumes, and painting their eyelids to make themselves attractive. They copied not merely the dress, but also the passions of women, devising in their excessive licentiousness unlawful pleasures in which they waddled as in a brothel. They did that. Pretended they were what they were not. And, <coughs> excuse me, did all sorts of licentious things. Finally, it says this. Thus they polluted the city with their foul practices, yet though they wore women's faces, their hands were murderous, they would approach with mincing steps, then suddenly become fighting men and whip out their swords from under their dyed cloaks and would run people through, stab them. Okay, you may take that all down. That's called hell unleashed. <coughs> Demonic forces working with human beings to do wicked things unimaginable to us. Their king, their king is what? Their king is the angel from the abyss. They're locked in. They don't change. They cannot. Because they're spiritual beings. Repentance is no longer possible for them. And their king is the devil. Now some applications for us. <clears throat> and we'll end. Number one, you won't think this is right, but it's true. Praise God that human beings are not angels. Angels are not objects of redemption. Angels cannot change. They're locked in. Good or evil. Praise God that we're not angels, that repentance is possible for human beings. That change and transformation by God's Spirit is possible for human beings. Give thanks to God for that. Therefore, we have hope for all. We don't care where you are, what you've done, all that. We want to let our light shine, and that light is the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that He can pick you up out of the pit, put your foot on a rock, make your footsteps sure, and go forward. And he takes all that which was before and washes it under the blood. Yes. Is that good? Yes. Angels cannot experience that. Demons cannot experience that. We can. And we have a hope. Now, <clears throat> what? Ah. Oh. <laughs> I had a good rabbit trail to go down, but we won't go there, all right? We'll, we'll let it go. Number two, you should know that Christians are sealed. Sealed by God. Our protection is not our 
Our protection is not us. How strong I am. I'm really committed. I'm not going to do this. I shall not be. I shall not be moved. Why? Because I'm so strong. No. I shall not be moved because God is for me. He'll hold me. He'll strengthen me. I may go back two steps. I'll go forward three. Right? Yeah, we're sealed by God. That's what we learned in chapter 7. We're sealed by His hands on us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Number three, recognize that our culture is under judgment. The things described here in Revelation 9 are typical of the culture around us, Western culture. It's a culture under judgment that rebels against the very things put in place that are the fabric of the world. They say, no, we want to change the world to fit our pattern. You can do that, but you won't be successful. You'll experience the judgment of God. And so, for us, what ought we to do with hell unleashed? We should be comforted. We should be assured. We should be thankful that God has a seal upon us. And then we should be valiant to stand for the truth in the midst of a culture that goes all kinds of different places. No matter what they do, let's stand for truth. Be valiant for God's word. Because hell has been unleashed in our culture. Amen.